comes, I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. Good morning. I'm reading from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. If you'd like to read along in your Pew Bible, it's page 888. And in your Following Jesus Bible, it's page 1143. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. If you have little ones first grade and under that would like to go over for our children's worship and nursery, uh, y'all can follow Miss Brittany. Let's wait for Miss Brittany, kiddos. Let's wait, 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 slow down. Miss Brittany is going to lead you guys across the way. If you're visiting here with us and you've got little ones who are going over, we'll invite a parent to go over there too to get them checked in with our uh, volunteers. In the meantime, one of the kids who are staying here, I need a volunteer. Ooh, Abby and Joe both raise their hand really quickly. All right, Abby and Joe, y'all can both help. Come on down. I have a jar here that's inconsequential. What's more important is what is in this jar. Do you observe? Maybe smell? You don't want to smell it? What's that? Dirt. It's dirt. You're right. It is, it is a jar of dirt. You sure you don't want to smell it? I think it smells kind of good. No? Okay. So what is, what is dirt? Ground. Got anything more than that? Anybody else? What is dirt? It's the earth, yeah? Okay, so there's decomposed matter. So there's organic material in here. That's right. And there's other stuff too, right? There's minerals, sand, um, rocks. Yeah, bugs would be decomposing matter. If there's a bug in here, this has been closed for like four days. 
he's gone. <laughs> he is decomposing. So that, that is correct. Thank you. So you have confirmed that this is indeed dirt. All right, thank you very much. Y'all can take a seat. So kids, I want to, I want to, you put your hand down, son. I, I want us to think about something that's a little gross, a little weird, and maybe even a little bit sad. So we said that the dirt, it has like minerals, there's rocks and just stuff in there, but there's also decomposing matter. There's organic material. So there's probably, I can see a pine needle here, but there's little bits of plant, little bits of bug. But when we die, what's going to happen to our bodies? Abby? Yep, that's right. So our bodies will decompose too. So maybe we'll be bo- buried in a, in a grave, or maybe our remains will be put in a mausoleum. I can't get this clothes while I'm talking. Regardless, our bodies are going to turn into dust. It's kind of gross. It's kind of weird. It's kind of sad to, to think about that. Grown-ups, how many times have you been to a funeral where you've heard a pastor like myself say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust? You ever wondered where that comes from? It comes from the Bible. If you look in the back of your worship guide, there's space to take uh, notes. And I've got two, wor- uh, two scriptures printed there f- for you at the beginning. From Genesis chapter 2, where we see where this comes from. The first one says this from Genesis 2. Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then again in Genesis 3, and to Adam God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our bodies are made up of the same stuff as the dirt, or conversely, the dirt is made of the same stuff that we're made of. And So that's where we come from, and that's what we will return to. And this idea that we come from the dirt, and that we're returning to the dirt, it's grasping with this difficult, painful, sad idea that brings about humility. The English word humility comes from the Latin humus, which means dirt. Humility really should come easy. Creatures made of dirt. It should come easily to us to kneel, to prostrate ourselves in the dust, to abase ourselves. You would think that humility would come easily to us who come from the dust and who will return to the dust. Ironically, humility is not what it used to be. You know, when you're hiring somebody or when you're voting for somebody or when you're reading a business book, How often is humility like a top 10 virtue that you're looking for in these people? Humility just doesn't seem to be a a virtue that we really aspire to that much. In fact, to be humiliated is something we want to avoid at all costs. What does it mean to be humbled? Here's the first blank in your worship guide for your notes. First blank is this. To be humbled is to return to a more correct estimation of oneself. To be humbled is to return to a more correct estimation of oneself. 
Now, for a human being, this means remembering that you are from dust and to dust you will return. Every one of us needs to be humbled. We need to remember where we came from, who we are, and where we're really headed. A lot of us, though, maybe all of us, have started to believe our own press, though. The conversation that Miss Amy read for us this morning uh, is a conversation between John the Baptist and one of his disciples. But really, we're seeing a dialogue between a humble man and a prideful man. John's disciple is a prideful man. When he hears that Jesus and his movement are becoming more popular than John and his movement, he becomes confused and jealous. He's prideful. Look at verse 22 in John 3. I'll read through verse 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. I think we can appreciate what's going on here. John's been in the industry for, for a long time now. For years, he's been baptizing. He kind of had the corner on this market. Like, he's literally called the baptizer. That's like his name now. And his disciples have been working hard with John, for John, and for John's ministry. And now there's this new upstart that's coming to town. And immediately, this other guy is more popular. And not only that, he's popular because of John. John used his platform to tell other people about Jesus, and suddenly everybody's going to him. Even followers of John are leaving John and going to Jesus. They're losing business. They're losing relational capital. People are leaving their movement. Things are on a downturn for John and his disciples in favor of Jesus and his movement. So as John's disciple looks at what's happening, he says, John... He's baptizing, and all are going to him. Implicit in this is, what, what, what are we going to do about this man? <laughs> but Jesus, uh, John's disciple had an incorrect estimation of himself and an incorrect estimation of John, especially in contrast to Jesus. He was prideful. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was humble, meaning he had a correct estimation of himself. He knew who he was. He knew what he was. He knew what his purpose was. Look at how John responds to his disciple in verse 27 and following. John answered, A person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You can almost hear John the Baptist chuckling as he corrects his disciple. No, 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 friend. You've forgotten who I am. 
You've forgotten who we are. You've forgotten our role in all of this. A person can't receive one good thing unless it's given to them from heaven. And what we've experienced already has been amazing in our ministry. And what we're experiencing now is still a gift from God, even if it's less than we have before. And even if it's less than Jesus has. And remember, man, I'm not the Christ. I've told you this before. I've told everybody this before. He's the groom at the wedding. I'm just the best man. It's not about me. And my joy in all of this is complete. So friend, I'm bound to decrease in popularity, in notoriety, because everything we did was about him. Our whole ministry, all of our efforts existed as a platform for him and for his ministry. John had a very accurate self-understanding. He knew who he was in relation to Jesus. But isn't hearing John say this, isn't it like a little bit sad? I mean, nobody likes to see the little guy take the back seat and drift into anonymity. I mean, we're Americans, right? We pull for the little guy. We pull for the moms and the pops. We love rogue preachers on the frontier doing weird stuff. That, this is who we like. So should we weep to hear John have this realization? We don't weep for John because, here's your next blank, it's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. It's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. John says, my joy is complete in this very limited, humbling position. This is the opposite of how the world thinks. The world does not think you will find your place through humbling yourself. It's not the way of the world. This is the way of Christ. Have you ever asked yourself the question before? Have I accomplished anything with my life? When I'm gone, will there be anything left but dust? If you haven't asked yourself that question yet, that's because you haven't felt the vanity of this life in your bones yet. But here's what you need to see. John the Baptist is one of the most revered Characters in all of Christian history, of all people, we would say that John experienced the height of purpose, that he knew his role in God's plan, and that he, of all people, achieved his reason for existing. But how did he find it? How did John find meaning and purpose in the vanity of this life? It wasn't through constant achievement, it wasn't through constant acceleration. It wasn't through constant improvement or expansion. John was no entrepreneur. John wasn't a rich man. He wasn't a jack of all trades. He really was kind of a weird dude who leaned into the couple of things he was really called to. God had one job for him. John's job was to tell people about Jesus and then hand them off to Jesus. And now it's his time to decrease His whole reason for existing was to be a footnote to Jesus, to preach in the desert for a few years and lose all of of his followers to Jesus. Through his humbling, he found his place in the world. Do you want to know why you specifically, personally exist? Do you want to find your part to play In God's redemption of the world, you can find it through humility. 
through a more correct estimation of yourself. It's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. And our place is not at the top. It's actually in the dust. Here's your next blank. How many of us have grandiose expectations of ourselves or others because we've forgotten who we really are? How many of us have grandiose expectations of ourselves or others because we've forgotten who we really are? Who are you? Really? What does the Bible say? Who does the Bible say you are, O man, O woman, O boy, O girl? Let's remember who you are. Here's your next blank. We are creatures, not the creator. We are creatures. We are made things. A few years ago, um, several of the men here at FPC, we went to Honduras to pipe clean drinking water into a remote village near the border of Nicaragua. The inhabitants of that village are, are of Native American descent, so they tended to be much uh, shorter and much smaller than, than, than us. So you can imagine how a man like Adam Bowen looked in that village. Um, very quickly, I might have started this, but very quickly, the entire village was referring to him as Superman. Because quite frankly, Adam looks like Superman to me. But I don't think it was maybe one or two days into our trip that Adam threw out his back. That's why he's not here today. He's having surgery this week on his back. He's had a lot of trouble. And the guy was miserable. He was sleeping on a camping cot in a village with no electricity (laughs) where we were bringing clean drinking water. And he just suffered. And suddenly, Adam didn't look like Superman anymore. He just looked like, you know, man. When you read the ancients and you hear stories of Achilles and Hercules, these were super men. These were men who were half man and half divine. And really, in our flesh, that's who we want to be. We don't want to be mere creatures. We don't want to be created, weak, dependent things. We want to be strong. We want to be big. We want to be supermen. But even the strongest among us, they're still just men. <laughs> About a month ago, I read a book um, that I think is really important. Um, it's called You're Only Humans, written by Dr. Kelly Capick, who's a professor at uh, Covenant College in Georgia. And in it, he talks about the importance of realizing we're not gods, we're creatures. If you look in your worship guide, I've got a quote from his book. He says, we tend to think of vulnerability as an occasional feeling. As when we lose our job or someone breaks up with us, like that's when we feel vulnerable. Yet as Kurt Thompson rightly explains, vulnerability is not something we choose or that is true in a given moment, while the rest of the time it's not. Rather, it is something we are. This is why we wear clothes, live in houses, and have speed limits. So much of what we do in life is designed, among other things, to protect us from the fact that we are vulnerable at all times. To be human is to be vulnerable. We will not find our meaning and our purpose in being supermen because we are not supermen. We are weak by design. You're not weak because of sin. You're weak because God created you to depend on him and on each other. We were created this way. We are created as creatures who are weak and must depend upon God and others. 
But how many of us have grandiose expectations of ourselves and others because we've forgotten who we really are? We've started to think that we're supermen. We're superwomen. We're not. We're not even half gods. We're not God at all. We are creatures. It's through our humbling, through coming to a more correct estimation of ourselves, that we find our place in the world. But this is not the only aspect of our humanity that we see in John the Baptist. Is your next blank. We are also finite, not infinite. We are finite, not infinite. You might think that's redundant with my previous statement about our creatureliness, but consider this. John had one job to do. His big redemptive reason for existing on the planet was to preach in the desert for a few years and lose all of his followers. His calling was very limited in its scope. His calling was very limited in its time. His calling was very limited in how far-reaching it was. Have you ever wondered if your reason for existing might be that simple? That it might be that limited? I think about this often. Because I often think I'm called to be the infinite savior of the universe. That I'm here to fix everything and everybody. I mean, I'm an idealist, right? I have a lot of ambition. And then I can't pull it off. I prove to be finite like everyone else, and I feel like I've failed. Again, I find Capic helpful on this point. Here's another quote in your worship guide. He says, we need to stop asking or feeling that we should ask for God's forgiveness when we can't do everything. And we need to ask forgiveness for ever imagining we could. That's the sin. That's the real idolatry is thinking that I can do everything and that I'm supposed to do everything. But in fact, we are finite. We only live so long. We can only impact so many people. We can only do so much before our body returns to the dust. Yet we live in a society that demands you to try to be infinite. 40 hours of work isn't enough. Push yourself to the limits. Exceed your limitations. Stretch yourself. And what is it doing to you? What is it doing to your life? You're like Bilbo Baggins. You feel thin. Sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. How often do you shortchange yourself on sleep so that you can get more done? What's that actually netting you in the end game? How many of us don't rest on the Sabbath because there's more to get done? Is that really making you happy? Is that helping you to find your purpose? How many of us have grandiose expectations of ourselves and others because we've forgotten who we really are? We're finite. We're not infinite. And it's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. You're not the creator and you're not infinite. You're a finite creature. We've got to be more realistic. Let's hone it in now. Here's your next blank. God gives every person a distinct purpose. God gives every person a distinct purpose. your reason for existing is not the same as your parents' reason for existing. The people that you compare yourself to, the people whose success you admire, they have a different part to play in God's story. 
from you. Perhaps even your own dreams and your own ambitions are not God's purpose for you. John had one specific job and he did it. So have you embraced your limits and therein found your purpose? Listen to how the Trappist monk Thomas Merton put it. It's printed again in your worship guide. He says, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. Have I found the nerve yet? Have I found the wound that keeps you up at night, urging you to go on the need to justify yourself to yourself and to God and to everyone else, the the need to achieve more, to be better, to be greater, to have more respect, more money, more things, more success. Do you see the idol that you're killing yourself for? That you are sacrificing yourself to? This is the God that the world wants you to die for. And it's a God that Jesus wants you to flee from to him. Find rest in him. To find a savior whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. It's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. Dare I say, we all probably need to be humiliated. We need to be brought back down to the earth, back to the dust from which we came and to which we will return. But how? How can we have the humility that John had, this correct estimation of himself that will help us find our place in the world? Here's your next blank. We need to remember that our knowledge and our cosmic position are earthy. We need to remember that our knowledge and our cosmic position are earthy. And therefore, we need to repent. Remember that our knowledge and position are earthy, and therefore, repent. So after this conversation between John and his disciple, John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, he editorializes a bit, which he is prone to doing after these narratives. And the point that John the Apostle pulls out of this conversation between the Baptist and his disciple is that these two men are earthy. We are humus humble, dust, but Jesus is not. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Here's your next blank. Anytime that I estimate myself more highly than I ought, I diminish the glory of Jesus in my life, and I need to repent. Anytime I start to think I'm a little less earthy than I really am, I'm making an idol out of myself, and I'm diminishing the glory of Jesus in my life. What is idolatry? Idolatry is anytime you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. That's a bad thing. 
Anytime you take a good thing and make it a God thing, that's a bad thing. That's idolatry. So anytime I elevate something higher than I ought, let alone a bad thing, it detracts from the glory of Jesus in my life and in my world. And certainly when I do this with myself, I'm definitely in need of repentance. John the Apostle then goes on to talk about specifically our knowledge, which is something we tend to be very prideful about. Back in verse 31, we'll start at the the end of the verse. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. So John the apostle says, Jesus is from heaven and he's above all. But also he speaks God's truth. He speaks the very words of God. And what does that mean about our knowledge? What does that say about our grasp of truth? Here's your next blank. Humility can be found by recognizing that I am prone to error. That's one way we can find humility is recognizing that we are prone to error, but that Jesus knows and reveals truth. I'm prone to error. Jesus is not. He knows the truth and he reveals the truth because he has the spirit and also he's seen it and heard it. He's God, right? He reveals truth. So I hate to tell you this as your pastor. There are things I believe that I'm wrong about. (laughs) There are things that I understand incorrectly. Now, there are some things I'll fight you over. The things I believe, I do believe with confidence. But do you want to know the one source of truth? True truth? Ain't your pastor. Truth. It's not found in you. It's not found through you. Uh, Truth doesn't come from human understanding, human cognition, human reason. Truth is not found solely through science or the scientific method and not even through history. And I'm a big fan of all those things. I believe God invented reason. I believe God invented science. I believe God has shown himself in history to help us find the truth. All those are tools to help us find the truth, but none of those is the source of pure truth. Nor are they the sole source from which truth can be found. Where can truth always be found? John says it in verse 33. God is true. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to go to the source of truth? Then you have to go to the mind of God. You have to ascend into the heavenlies and understand something that you can't fathom, the mind of God. Luckily, he has revealed his mind to us. He reveals truth to us. And how has he done it? through his Son, and through his Spirit. Look at verses 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. If you haven't been reading philosophy lately, some of you have. You know, I'm talking about epistemology. How do we know what's true? Parents, your kids are being taught in epistemology every day. They're being taught where to find truth, how to find truth. 
And we live in a culture that says there's one way to find truth. Science is the sole place to find truth. And if you can't prove it or falsify it, it's not true. That's not a biblical worldview. That's not what we believe. We believe in science. We love science. We have scientists and doctors here in our congregation. We believe God gave us this to help us know. But there is one source from which all truth comes, and it is God. Unbelievers will not accept this as as an okay epistemology. Why? Because they're not humble. They've forgotten who and what they are. They think that they and their reason or their science and their history are the sole source of truth. But John says, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this. It's like a, a seal on a ring. It's like signing your name. They're signing their name to this, that God is true. When that is my baseline understanding of knowledge, when I understand that, that truth is to be found first in God... Not in me or through me or in or through anything earthly, then I'm able to start finding my place in the world. I, you, people, we are bound to be wrong often. Even though we really believe what we believe. When I receive that, that God is always right and I am often wrong, then I'm able to start finding my place in the world. If I want to know truth about anything, but I never go to God, I'm bound to be wrong. So I've got to be asking, and your kids have got to be asking, what does God say about me and who I am? What does God say about my life? What does God say about my world? What does God say about the truth? It's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. May that we, you of all people, would develop great humility about their intellect about their wisdom, their knowledge, their brains. But there's more than that. It's not just our knowledge. It's also our position in the universe. What is your cosmic position in this world, you who are made of dust? Who are you really? Again, again, John the Baptist and John the Apostle tell us. Look at verse 27, and then we'll jump forward to verse 34. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And then verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Humility, a humility that helps us find our place in the world, is found in knowing our cosmic position. Existence is not anthropocentric, man-centered. The earth isn't even at the center of the universe. What is then? Who is at the center of all things? Existence is not anthropocentric, but Christocentric, Christ-centered. Don't forget John chapter 1, where Jesus is called the Logos. The word, and we talked about what that meant in kind of the the background of Greek philosophy. Saying that Jesus is the logos means that Jesus is the purpose for existence. Everything was made for him, through him, and by him. And all of our existence, everything that exists, exists for him and his glory. Existence exists 
for Christ. Jesus is at the center of existence. So if he's at the center of everything, if he's the purpose of existence itself, who are we? What are we? Here's the last three blanks in your worship guide. Humility is found in remembering that I am these three things. Number one, a child at the feet of a generous father. We are a child at the feet of a generous father. Secondly, we are a helpless beneficiary of our good Savior. We're a child and we're a helpless beneficiary of our good Savior. And thirdly, we are divinely limited servants at the beck and call of of the Holy Spirit. You are a divinely limited servant at the beck and call of the Holy Spirit. There's a nice Trinitarian structure to be found in our text that shows us something remarkable. We are less than God. We are dependent, vulnerable, finite amalgamations of dust and spirit. We are the breath of God knitted together with flesh. But oh, friends, hear this. You are loved. You are so loved. The God who created you has given you every good thing you have. The God who formed you in your mother's womb gave his life to redeem you, to know you. The God who planned your life now inhabits you. He has a design for his own glory in your life. Yes, we're creatures. Yes, we're less than God. Yes, we're dust, but we're more than animals. We bear the image of God. In Genesis 1, Moses recorded the words of God. This is printed on the back of your worship guide. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If we would stop trying to be gods for just a moment, if we would be humble, if we'd humble ourselves before our creator and redeemer, therein we would find our great dignity, that though we are creatures limited, vulnerable, and finite, we have been given the capacity to image forth God in the world, to reflect his glory in the way that we live and love. Have you found the freedom of humility, of a more correct estimation of yourself? It's through our humbling that we find our place in the world. So chew on this idea that your knowledge and your position in the cosmos, it might not be what you think. And then return to your creator and redeemer to find your purpose, your identity, your very essence. He who is truth is also love. And when you come to him in faith and repentance, he will not turn you away. Instead, he will give you the life that you were made for. Let's pray. Oh God, in your mercy, humble us. Show us who we really are, where we come from, where we're headed, and who you've called us to be right now. Help us to find freedom in depending upon you. 
in depending upon each other. You've given us just a few things to do, just like you did with John the Baptist. Thank you for the example we've seen in him. And help us to see that he found his purpose in Christ and in Christ alone. Pray this in the name of Jesus.